0: This is not another one of those cast pod thingies, is it? <laughs> Tajian's man, I, yeah, know, I it. know it. Yeah, too I know it too. I really do. That's why we will rise. Put your hands up. If you're proud of what you do, please stand up. Careful what you yeah. ruin and man up. That's why we will rise. To the sky be flooding? Got Jesse crashes in the salon at the same time yes here we go today this is a special one we've got outback mike if you don't know who outback mike is he's been on bloody every bit of social media and news lately so check him out on instagram and stuff but i'm gonna give you a rundown here he is outback mike he's an outback adventurer He's actually a polar adventurer as well. He built his own raft and he traveled over a thousand kilometers in it from Townsville to the tip of Australia. All all while going through croc and shark infested waters. You just have to, I don't want to talk too much more about it. is an awesome podcast and i'd like to thank mike for jumping on board and um yeah i felt very very honored to have him in this uh podcast arena with me so thank you again michael for dropping by and um here we go this is part one part two will be out next week and just remember this podcast brought to you by fish skins get online the new stuff is out i think it's out this weekend so get in quick before the stocks run out, and um, let's take it away, Mike. This is an awesome one. Let's All take right, it we'll, away, son. We might as well kick it off. Yeah, yeah, cool. Yep, yep we've got good uh, G'day, everyone. We've got a uh, pretty cool dude in the in the studio. We've got uh, Mike Atkin- Atkinson. Uh, any relation to Rowan?
1: No. No, no, no. I wish I was as funny as him, too.
0: <laughs> don't even have to move. Don't even have
1: to talk. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, audio would be easy. <laughs> Mr. If
0: you don't know that is, Mr Bean. <laughs> so, mate, uh, where do we start? I don't think this podcast is going to cover a, a smidgen of what you could talk about, <laughs> but um, let's talk about well, where you're from, family at the start. I always like to start with that because I think it's the most
1: important. Yeah, sure. So. Cool. Um, I currently live in Nelson Bay, which is about half an hour north of Newcastle. And um, I'm married with two kids, and so my wife Melinda's at home. And uh, New South Wales is locked down now, so it's pretty hard work at the moment down there. So she's working and looked after the kids, and you know, looking after the house and everything. So it it makes you feel even worse about being away. (laughs) Um, Mind you, this lifestyle, when I scoped it out, part of the aim was to be better for the family. In that, I'm not away that much. When I am away, it'll be like maybe two months, and then I'm back editing and planning the next thing and stuff and yeah um, so that's been good if I had stayed in the military I, I would have been away nine months of the year flying yeah. operations so this is better than that yeah <laughs> she, you know it'd probably be better if I did some like normal day-to-day job I guess in, in many ways but she knows that that's sort of not who I am and what I like to do and now the second day after, I took her out to the Kimberley and did 500k's in a tinny and then chartered a chopper got dropped out in the case and stuff and walked back pretty epic um so she's known from day one that's kind of what i do so yeah. i'm very lucky that she allows me to still do that
0: <laughs> it's yeah, yeah. it's a pretty big deal to, to um, be able to have a wife that understands you in that sort of part and yeah it's, it's probably hard to find someone that would be
1: that understanding as well it is yeah yeah I, i'm very lucky and the kids uh, I think are okay with it as well They I think they're sort of Happy with what I'm doing It's difficult to know Like obviously as a parent You need to You need someone else to ask your kids <laughs> Yeah Because all parents go Oh they, my parent, My kids think what I'm doing's awesome <laughs> <laughs> Yeah But they They handle that pretty well So uh, yeah, I can't can't wait to get home. I got a few things to do on the way home, but yeah. But just stepping back from that, um. So I basically, as a kid, I I watched the Bush Tucker Man and Top Gun, and yeah. I thought they're the two things I want to do. So <laughs> how
0: do I mix those
1: <laughs> exactly? And that's sort of what I've been doing ever since. But I knew that I had to pursue piloting first. Yeah. So I was always in the outdoors doing adventures. You know, when I was 17, I skied from Mount Kosciuszko to Canberra, which was about 220 k's, and that was the first time I did a big adventure beginning to end. And thought, yeah, this is cool. Like when when you're doing it. You're like wishing you'd never started. This is the dumbest idea ever. What was I thinking? And that ends up being the best thing you did. And, and it becomes like um, an, an addiction, effectively. Mm. Um, but a good a, addiction. A good addiction. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I did all these adventures, but then I put all of my study work into being a pilot. Didn't get in the first few times. So I travelled the world, did more adventures, um, but uh, eventually got in as a helicopter pilot. Um, and uh, during that time, I always did lots of survival courses and I was um, doing... In survival instruction with Aboriginal people in a predominantly Aboriginal unit called yeah. the North Force. So that's where I was learning a lot of the really cool survival stuff because the pilot survival stuff is more about setting off flares and getting found in a life raft, yeah. which isn't really bush tucker. Mm. Uh, anyway, and then I ended up transferring to the Air Force and uh, flying jets for a bit and that was awesome. And then I went to Saudi Arabia for the f- almost the last five years. Um, I was working for a civilian company instructing over there but I did sort of desert survival over there. Bought two camels and did a pretty epic survival expedition with camels over there, which I didn't talk about. I haven't released on anything on that because the security threat over there with Al Qaeda and terrorists and being targeted as a Westerner was quite high. And I had my family there, so I basically got that in the bag for a later film. All that footage. Yep. Uh, and then. Whilst I was over there as well, I did my first feature film in New Kimberley where I put myself in the historic predicament of two aviators. So it was quite a lot six-week expedition. Plunked myself in the bush with the mock plane floats, built a catamaran, sailed along the coast and visited places where they almost died and were rescued by Aboriginal people. And I just used my military skills and Australian experience, which they didn't have, so yeah. um, to get out and made a film about that. So I basically saw the business model from beginning to end um and so then I'm, that's why i've taken the step now where i've left piloting for good uh, no not for good um i've just left it until i can incorporate it into my films because I, <laughs> I love being a pilot and i love helicopters i miss particularly the helicopters um so yeah now i'm going to make a film uh already made this one i will well i've just finished the expedition i'll spend a year cutting it together um youtube series feature film podcast book as well yeah and then i'll tour around with a canoe and uh and all the stuff. I guess I should explain what adventure I did, because everyone's like, who the hell is this guy? Is it? <laughs> well,
0: well I'll, I'll say a little bit in the <laughs> it'll intro. Be yeah, yeah, okay. It'll be there. But, um, yeah, even that one you said with the pontoons and that, I, I read that it's in a museum somewhere now?
1: Yeah, it's in the in the Kalumbaru, um Museum there. It's a little town. It's an Aboriginal community town. Yep. It's probably rusted to bits because it was made of, made of 44 gallon drums and <laughs> it's now sixty years ago or something. So, it's um, yeah, it's rusted to bits, but... Yeah, people are certainly interested in it, and I'm still um, selling DVDs from that in that in the another museum nearby and stuff. So I'm able to contribute back to the communities that assisted me, yep. um, including the Aboriginal community. I had a plaque made that that basically just showed the public when they visit that Aboriginal people saved these guys yep. and how they were really generous with their time and their efforts and their lives by this crazy rescue effort that they did, yep. um, which they're just so humble about and uh, i just think it should be recognized it should be a well-recognized story yeah,
0: they're so humble because that's their life that's that's just how they live they're just, they're yeah like, we'll just help someone with they're there we'll just teach them what we we know and
1: yeah it's a cultural value that they mm. have that we uh, we're a bit more sort of we'll, we'll pipe up and talk about more what we do but their elders you know there's the only way you know they're an elder really is someone tells you mm. they don't wear flashy clothes <laughs> they don't walk around with their chests puffed out they're just very capable humble people and so it's it's really it, I like being in a society like that where mm. it's not how flashy you are and all that kind of stuff it's it's about how how good you are it's a meritocracy yeah yeah and um, it,
0: it the the one you just did pretty much has the same sort of idea about it doesn't it
1: yeah it does so this um this shipwreck survivor whose situation i put myself in he he wrecked outside the great barrier reef about 900 kilometers and the wreck was getting smashed up on the reef and 21 of the passengers and crew basically chopped down the masts and a bunch of the rigging and made this big raft with a sail on it and they chucked you know, axes and anything that they thought they could survive with when they got somewhere. They didn't even know where they'd end up. So um, of these 21 that got on there, 14 of them died, seven made it ashore just uh, south of Townsville at Cape Cleveland, which is where I started, which just happens to be the Australian Institute of Marine Science uh, now. So that's why I started there. And that's
0: when you head south and it's sort of you go, the salt pans just there and you head across the salt pans.
1: Yeah, yeah, those mangroves there. Yeah, yep yep. So that's where he basically, well, everyone else, all the other white guys died and he assimilated into Aboriginal society, learnt their language. He was really good at hunting and trapping because he had sort of a bit of a, he was a a ship's carpenter as well. So he was engineering minded. So he gained quite a lot of respect within the Aboriginal community there. Yeah. You you know, sort of, there's people. his direct relatives, which I interviewed just a few days ago, and Aboriginal people down there all reckon that he had family with Aboriginal people. Yep. He never mentioned that when he wrote a book 17 years later when he basically reassimilated into white society, when the, the wave of white people went through to the north and he went back into it. Um, he, he probably did have a family. And I, I'm my guessing, I'm only guessing that he didn't want to talk about it in order to protect them. Yeah. Because he was getting death threats from non-Aboriginal people for being seen as too much of a sympathiser. Yeah. But he did had a, have a family with um, a white family and... Uh, one son And then he died Two years after re-assimilating Probably from An injury he got from a croc attack Just a it Sounds like a freshie bit him on the leg Jeez. A little freshwater croc or something And the bone got infected Just had a bit of um, Bursa or something Something like yeah. that Yeah That just got got worse So But yeah he's, So he wrote a book about it And he details a lot of stuff About how Aboriginal people lived And how rich the society was And all their You know Their cultural um, Celebrations And it's pretty complex They know a lot about Um a lot more than we do about how everything's interconnected and their, their ecological knowledge is better really than a you know our best phd grad yeah. in fact phd grads will go to aboriginal communities to ask the questions. ask questions <laughs> yeah now they might phd grads have a different kind of understanding that they'll understand you know the molecular biology behind something but they won't be able to place how everything fits together and notice that this has changed this has changed Mm. particularly what's happening with the environment now it's the aboriginal people that notice the introduced species first or that the seasons are changing or anything like that yeah so yeah they got a huge like i would call it uh, an aboriginal education there's few people that have an an education of the ways of the outdoors, and that's it should be valued as much as a PhD. So there's a guy, Victor Stephenson, who's a, a Aboriginal traditional fire practitioner who just did get recognised with a PhD from um, JCU um, because he's taken on all that traditional burning knowledge and he's putting it back out to the world through accredited um, white courses so it's a huge I'm only, I don't even understand how much they know I, just the more I know the more I realise that we don't know yep. and it's really good for, for keeping it all going in the future um, optimising it for the plants, animals, birds not having this scrub that's stuck in there all the time that goes mm-hmm. up like a bushfire really yeah. badly every year
0: yeah, there's so much knowledge there even I see locally there's the magic mushrooms that grow in the paddock next to me but they just they'll come up just one weather event and all of a sudden the whole it's like the whole paddock talks to each other. They talk to each other like, Okay, we're we're going up now And then How? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> how does that how does that happen? It's just like the spores are all like interconnected, interconnected somehow, and they all know yep. when,
1: when, when to strike, sort of thing. It's just crazy how how it all happens. Exactly, I, I find the same with pippies. Like you'll be on the beach and you won't see many pippies, and then you'll be fishing, and then after two hours, all of a sudden, every single pippy will come out of the water on one wave and then go back in again. Yep. It's like, what's the how are you communicating people? Because <laughs> that's definitely communication going Yeah. Out. Yeah, and they're they're great with that, and they have all these other indicators. So, I was hunting stingrays, and um, he's going, "Oh, that's that's not the right season for stingrays." Um. And I was like, oh, but why does it matter? And he goes, oh, well, first of all, for sustainability, mm. we, we take certain things at certain times of year and that might fill a gap between when the dugongs, we beat the dugongs, so there's that reason. But there's also, they taste rubbish at this time of year. Yeah. Because the, like liver, the livers are the wrong colour and you need to get them at this time and mix the fat from the liver in with the meat. And he goes, well, we just use this particular flower to indicate when that's happening. So there's a lot of other indicators that they use that match in with, yep. those, with those environmental events. So... Yeah, yeah. I heard a, a fellow from Papua New Guinea, I wanted to get him on here And he,
0: he said there's a flower on a tree that will only flower a certain time of the year And when that flowers, the crayfish walk the reef Yeah, yeah, and that stuff g- like that Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly <laughs> um, The mullet, what's the when the mullets have the egg red, which I was eating on my trip That one's the when the yellow K-pop flower comes out Yep um, Which is all up and down the coast as well yeah. Jeez Yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's a crazy world, isn't it? <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. It's it's just great when you can get an insight into it. In, in this, it's it's, they really need to focus on it because these elders aren't getting any younger. No, and no. the knowledge, if it doesn't get passed
1: on, where's it go? Exactly, and that's why I, what I've been chatting to Aboriginal communities whenever I can, and at the schools up in Ti and stuff as well. And what I say to the young kids is, man, if you guys are motivated into YouTube and stuff, get into it because lots of people would love to see um aboriginal people showing us how to do it and if Mm. you do it on youtube all that knowledge will be kept like i was chatting to rusty butler down in townsville and i'm I'm, he's getting on and we're just saying i'm going to try and come back up for a week and just film everything just walk we did this the other day for a few hours but just do all the different environments and get it all down just for his people alone just to have as as a bank of information Mm. i see adam kavanagh is another follower who's he's on naked and
0: afraid Okay, yep. and he, he was actually been chatting with him to come on here, and he he's actually yeah following a dude around doing the same thing. Oh great, so, yeah, well. and how to get the honey out of the trees and <laughs> bees, and they were driving along in a car, and they just looked up. Actually, this was on All for Adventure. This one was yeah same idea, but it happened the same week, the same two films, and and he the old lady looked up in the tree as we're doing like 40 k's an hour and goes stop, stop. <laughs> yeah. And this tree 40 <laughs> metres in the sky is like that's where the bees were and it's, yeah. and it's they're not, they're pretty rare to
1: find. Yes. By the sound of it. They are, yeah. I've, I've found bees with Aboriginal people <clears throat> in ant mounds and I've gone back to the same spot later on just to get some more film of it. And I'm like, I can't find the bloody things. Yeah. You know, and, and I even know which ant man they're in. Like that, I've actually got native bees in my backyard. They're, they're tiny. Mm. And exactly. I mean, how they do that, there's probably all these other factors. She's probably looking at the, the Kuiper tree, the time of year. There's some other stuff that we don't know. Yeah. All we see is, oh, she just jagged It's looked up and saw some bees. Yeah. But um, yeah, for her to do it at 40 k's an hour in a moving car, she's obviously using all these secondary and tertiary mm. uh, indicators for her, say so that's the place to go. Yeah. <laughs> so getting back to let's let's start the
0: adventure. So I, I've seen it's a Norfolk, Norfolk pine. Yeah.
1: Yep. And a, Yeah.
0: Just what four tonne?
1: Yeah, started out <laughs> at four tons, yeah. So the, the genesis of the film really, so I made the Kimberley one, um, and I'm like, okay, where's the next one gonna be? Uh, let's do it on the Great Bay Reef because it's awesome. I, I mean, I love it. came up here a lot as a kid. I worked on a dive boat for a bit out of Port Douglas. Um, yeah, d- did some sea kayaking trips and stuff. And so I thought, right, I researched survival stories that happened here. This one, as soon as I found it, I'm like, yeah, this is a bit of a no-brainer. took me a while to develop the concept of about how will I tackle his situation. I don't want to put myself on a, on a makeshift raft out in the ocean. It doesn't make sense. I haven't got 21 people. We're not all going to die. Um, so I just th- thought I'll pick his situation one year after he landed. So, his, so that was James Morrell. James Morrill, yep. yeah, 1846. Yep. Um, the same guy in that story at the beginning there. So after a year, he'd learned stuff from Aboriginal people, probably similar to what I've learned in my life with Aboriginal people. He's probably learned it in a year. Um, in fact, his knowledge would be a lot better because he was living it, breathing it, yeah. and, and all of the Aboriginal people all lived it and breathed it. So he would have had more knowledge than me, and he had there was tools that he had off the raft. He had sextant and charts, so I took sextant and charts with me as well. And um, he also lived... That area of Cape Cleveland is... There's these wetlands there. They're full of magpie geese. It's like the uh, Queensland version of Kakadu. Yeah. And so there's lots of bush tucker around, so it's easy for him to support himself while he's making a canoe. Aboriginal people are already making canoes, double outrigger canoes, not so much in that area, but further up the coast. But he found dugout canoes when he first landed, so they were there. So he would have had their assistance, but he was also a ship's carpenter. So rather than me going up there and making it, Uh, And being away from my family for longer I made it down south I tried to get a native tree from up here But it's difficult And I didn't want to cut one down out of a forest So Mm. Uh, Norfolk pine was the best thing I could find down south it was growing in someone's backyard in Newcastle and it was they become dangerous when they get high so it had been chopped down sitting in a farmer's paddock for three months I have rang him up through some detective work got a hold of it he very generously allowed me to take it off him for the cost that he'd got it plonked on his paddock yep so I went in my backyard I thought great I reckon four months I'll just go really hard I can probably finish this you anyway, know it took me 14 months <laughs> <laughs> um, which basically took me through to the next dry season because I knew I had to do it in the dry season because yeah. of the prevailing southeasterly trades so, yeah, I just went flat chat the whole time. And I, then after the four-month mark, I thought, oh, I can relax now because I'll easily have enough time. So, I did a recce up here, uh, visited traditional owners, looked at some of the bush tucker stuff, and then went back down again and then rushed, 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 and only just got it done in time to leave. Yep. After 14 months. So, yeah, it's a double outrigger canoe. It's 5 metres 20 long. The floats are made out of uh, – I, I would have used bomb backs up here or – uh, beach hibiscus but i just didn't have access so i used the chinese thing called polonia which is basically similar yeah it's a light um, density low density floating wood um and i just made up the sail design myself and every part of it i actually made it myself just because i'm fairly familiar with the conditions up here i knew it had to be able to survive that sort of one and a half two and a half meters yeah. yeah the short <laughs> chop which is worse than being on the ocean mm. because um you have all these swamping things that happen uh, and the winds being strong as well so i had a A high wind sail, a crab claw sail, and all of the the sails I actually got, they were donated from a tour ship um, society in Sydney called um, the Sydney Heritage Fleet, and they maintain all the big tour ships down there. So I got a a genuine cool-looking old sail, Saved all that up in a big sail, small sail, and I managed to get it all tested down there. It was all rushed once again, trying to get away, Um, tested it. I realized that Jesus' sides aren't high enough. So I built the bow up and the stern up. And if, if I hadn't done that, I would have, all these things were saying necessary for me yeah. to just make it through. And sort of the crux of the sailing danger came just towards the end where I, I came close to capsizing. And all of those sleepless nights and design decisions all came down and were tested right to the right limit. Put
0: right on the last And, yeah.
1: of days. <laughs> and another one-inch lower on the sides. You know, any any little wavering of that marginal line would have been rolled over there in yeah. some really crocky seas. Mm. Um, would have been horrible. So, yeah, the cadena the design worked quite well. Yeah. It's, it's not like a great, fast sailor. It's a log, you know. Yeah. But uh, it it did the trick. So, anyway, I dragged it up to uh, Townsville and uh, got stuck with a lockdown there. As soon as that finished, I launched, and then it was basically 50 days in the end.
0: Yep. Also, just getting back to the vessel, you actually handcrafted all the rudders and everything...
1: Yeah, so, so, I, so I did use – so what I I wanted to prove that I could do it with only hand tools, but then yep. once I'd done a certain step, like removing things a certain way from the centre of the log, then I would do repeat steps with a chainsaw. Uh, it would have taken me probably three or four years if I hadn't used that chainsaw there. Yep. But normally a village will yeah, muck in and do it, do it really quickly. So that's with James Morrill, that's what would have happened as mm. well. Uh, so, yeah, most, yeah, hand tools and all of the carving, and I didn't use any – um sealing stuff or other than native beeswax yeah um so it was all old materials and yeah. i see
0: that you you uh burnt burnt the hole
1: just to oh that was because i had borers, borers in it yeah so yeah. there's borers living in in the log and um when i cut away the bark i was like oh man they go through like a couple of inches and so <laughs> there's I, holes <laughs> yeah exactly and they do leak and I, and I ended up filling up existing holes with native beeswax when i was finished but, um, yeah, th- th- so that burning underneath it was just to kill the borers that were in there. Yeah. Yeah, I thought I would get shipworm when I started sailing and it would start leaking and I'd have to get it out, try it out on a sandbar and do that. But that wasn't the case. It got slime and barnacles on it, but yep. I didn't get any shipworms, I don't think. Yeah.
0: Yeah, like even you think that amount of time in the water, sort of, it wasn't a long enough time. Like I had boats in the river and you just think barnacles and like you would think... How, how do they get,
1: they, how they grow so quick? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the barnacles, um, are so, oh, they're only probably six, seven mil across at the moment. Yep. But the shipworm, someone was telling me, oh, you'll get shipworm within weeks. Um But I didn't have that. It's funny, you do get a lot of people that tell you very authoritatively something and it's like, okay, but have you actually tried it yourself? (laughs) You you do have to question, but you always have to take people's advice and think about it. Yeah. But you get a lot of advice about crocs from people who've probably never even been to Cape York, (laughs) (laughs) which is always a bit
0: of a funny one. (laughs) I had a boat in the river here and it was so funny, because the North Johnson River is mainly fresh water that runs out of it because we get a lot of rain in this area we could keep a boat in the water for two years not a barnacle grows on it just pull it out gurn it re- refoul it and you foul it and then if you put it in the harbour you get like six months and you have to pull it out <laughs> because yeah, right. it's just salt water costing, yeah right. so it's just a big yeah. difference in cost of keeping a boat on the water is just from one river to another that's
1: only probably 7k apart yeah and salt great. For Wooden boats because it stops rotting. Yep, um, that's how I stopped the cracking because I'd spray it with salt water. Because if I sprayed it with fresh, you'd get slimy. Hmm. So I've heard people that own wooden boats say they try to keep it in salt water because it's better for the wood. But yeah, then, they, then you'd be fighting against that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so and you'd stuff. have to just regularly go between the two, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> that's why no one's got wooden boats because they're a pain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, I've
0: seen like up until probably they built trawlers up until probably the 80s. And yeah. they sort of stopped,
1: walked, went away, and went to steel and aluminium. to, yeah. to go that way. No one's yeah. going to go back. <laughs> well, one good thing about wood is when you sleep inside a wooden hull, it doesn't slap. Like, mm. in the, have you slept in a tinny? Yeah, it's horrible <laughs> all night long. It's really hard to sleep, even with earplugs in. Yeah. I can't sleep. But with a wood, you don't. It's it's silent. Mm. The slapping. That would be good yeah, too. Which is cool. Yeah, which cool. Their fiberglass is sort of the same, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, it yeah. Makes, makes a big difference when you're in there because you, it's you're like in an echo chamber. It's like you're living inside a guitar. Yeah. Something that's it's designed to um, propagate sound waves. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so when you left Townsville, what, was it the first day? What was running through your head like? Uh, first day, was, it was um, stressful because I'm always worried about forgetting stuff because everything's completely unsupported. And also, you know, with my adventures, normally you, you try to just sort of sneak away on adventure so nobody knows, because that way it all goes to poo. You can head back. It, yeah, it's like no one knows. Have you left on the shipment? No, I haven't left, mate. <laughs> yeah, I'm still just still getting ready. But, um, you know, like I'd gone all out and I had the Today Show. Doing a live interview and everything—that yep. was it was my idea because I couldn't. Pressure. It was heaps of pressure, <laughs> and I couldn't do it on land because I would have had to wear a mask, and then the interview doesn't work. So I had to do it at sea, and I was just lucky that it was only blowing five to ten knots. Uh, but even during the interview, I'm like trying to paddle away from a rock and stuff like that. <laughs> uh, but I was just—that was just. Jagged it with the weather, because yeah. if it's 25 knots It would not have worked Yeah. Um, but I got got going and it was a pretty successful day It was only 10 kilometers. just got around The lighthouse of Cape Cleveland um, Chucked the anchor down, so that was Good, and then the first three days The weather was just light and easy And I could tell, okay, this is great, don't get your hopes up Because it's going to get worse than this mm. So I did get eased into it And so, sort of three or four days of easy stuff Got to sort of Hinchinbrook Island Area, and then it just went all rainy And Yuck <laughs> Welcome to my town <laughs> <laughs> And uh, it's, it's a shame because I had organised with a traditional owner for him to come out and we are going to camp there uh, COVID and a whole bunch of things stopped that happening because of all the restrictions yeah. um, Luckily it, it did because it was horrible weather And then I had some pretty serious incidents happen with the, with the dugout So um, when I tried to get out around the headland to sort of halfway along Hinchinbrook Island the rudder pinion snap, that's what the, the rudder rotates yeah. on. So I basically spent a day fixing that up. And then I got going again, and I'm sort of more north, almost um, north around, almost getting north of Hinchinbrook, going along, yeah. Oh, this is great, it's pretty rough, there's white caps, but it's all going good. And then the rudder snapped in half yeah. um, completely, which is a pretty big deal on a on a sailing boat. So I managed to get it in, get the sail down, use a emergency oar. And sail really to the next island Where I thought I'd have a safe enough anchorage And that was a national park island So I couldn't cut down any wood and yeah. I basically just spent a couple of days Searching for a piece of driftwood which would do it and it's not like you're just finding something that's just going to patch you up and get you to the nearest port. For mm. me, it was like I'm not even 20% through the trip yet, so it had to be something that lasted all the way. So I chose something which was big, bulky, really strong, not particularly hydrodynamic underwater, but it's not going to snap. Yeah. And I managed to shape that into what got me all the way to the tip in the end. Yeah, so,
0: I've actually had a chat with Az about... He, he said the same thing, heading up and then you can't... They hit of area where it's a green zone, so you can't fish there and stuff. My thoughts on what what are your thoughts my thoughts were if you're in that area you're under self-propulsion you're in survival mode you're not in you're not in a let's go out have some fun and let's head home or whatever you you you're in survival mode pretty much so i feel when you're in those areas you should be allowed to if your boat's broken you should be able to find a tree to fix it or if
1: you yeah yeah because there's not going to be a lot of people that do that i agree um and maybe i could have done that as well but what was more important than particularly in the sanctuary zone side of fishing, was that I support the fact that we need the sanctuary zones. I think we've overpopulated the planet and we need to stop having more people and and we also need to, uh, what we've got, pull back on what we're taking. So, yeah, and I'm I'm keen to push the national park thing. I mean, if those islands weren't national parks, they'd be covered in little huts. There'd be people camping all over Mm -hmm. them and stuff. So... Uh, I wanted to, in a way, use my example of, look, I'm, I'm, I'm starving here and I'm going through all the hardship because there's these rules, but we need the rules. And yep. I'm, I'm relating that back to our Aboriginal society because they had a lot of rules and they used to abide by them and that used to maintain their sustainability. Yep. So, yeah, that's why I was happy to uh, yeah, deal with difficult rules. There were times when I considered breaking the national parks rules and I talked about it on camera. For example, when I was anchoring behind some little sand spit Island which I know is national park, and there's big croc cracks on the beach. Or I've seen a big croc on the drone and it's coming towards me. I'd be happy enough to break the rules out and camp on an island yeah. when you're not going to camp. And I think national parks would be happy enough with that. Mm. I didn't end up having to do it because I had mitigations on my canoe. There's certainly times when it, it, it is okay to break a rule if it's life and death. And people die when they're trying to, when they probably should have just broken a rule. And it's about understanding when that's appropriate and when it's yeah. not. That's pretty that's a really good answer, actually. <laughs> that's
0: it. And I'm I'm on the, along the same lines with you. I think our catch, our our uh, quota numbers are too too high on a lot of species. And um, I've I've said it on this podcast before. Crayfish is one of the ones where I just noticed I've speared out this reef for years, and there's the crayfish numbers aren't even near where they used to be. Yep, and the quota's still the same. So
1: yeah, I mean five's a lot, and you had. Yeah, four people go out in a boat. Yeah,
0: no, it's, it's three per person, ten per boat. Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah, so that's ten cray you're taking home that day. And like I say, crayfish is is a flavour, not a. You're not going to sit down and have a feed of crayfish like the whole family's not going to have a cray each. Yeah, at the yeah. table, sort of thing. It's a it's a flavour you put in your spaghetti or something like that. It's, yeah. And I've always been I've always been vocal about the cray, especially the crayfish. Is just like. Three max per boat, we don't need any more than that. It's yeah, they're a big, they're a big animal. Yeah, you get yeah. a big, um, three kilo, four kilo crayfish that's feeding your family
1: that one crayfish that night. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And, and so, back in my shipwreck survivors, day, the Aboriginal guys tell me that in their day they would just walk down at low tide and they'd see the fillers and they'd pick them up. You can't do that anymore because mm. there's not as many. Why? Because there's more people. Yeah, so the first two-thirds of my trip I didn't catch a single fish trolling and then once I got past Port Douglas basically where the population stops I started to catch fish and yeah you could look at a whole bunch of different reasons but really it's just the amount of fish goes down when there's more people fishing for them Mm. and the more people apparently we are net importers of fish in Australia so we're actually bringing in more fish from overseas so we're already taking our more than our fair share from other people's fish around the world um, and we're sort of Allowing ourselves the luxury of giving ourselves sanctuary zones and giving ourselves a pat in the back, but just raping everybody else's yeah. ocean instead. <laughs> take the focus on news. exactly. Yeah. So there's there's problems, and it all I think comes back down to overpopulation of, of humans. So I'm not saying we should have like a one-child policy, but we need to disincentivize having large families. Mm. Um, at the moment, like I don't know if we're still giving out the baby bonus, but I got paid seven thousand bucks from from the government with my two kids because yeah. they wanted to encourage us to have more. Mm. And there's this growth, growth, or we need growth, or well, I, don't think, I think the quality of our life goes down. No one's building more beaches. No one's building more coral reefs. No. They're the things that, I mean, I'm guessing the people that listen to your podcast um, enjoy. Do you want to share that with another? Do you want the population to double in the next 15 years and you're sharing yeah. it with even more people?
0: Well, it's, it's the same thing with, like spearfishing's huge now. 20 years ago, it wasn't, it was just like, people seeing you as like, a fucking idiot if you're yeah. getting in the water at the reef. Yeah, yeah. Now everyone's every second boat, or every boat that goes out, someone in the boat. Yeah, jumps it, in the water. It's exploded, hasn't it? Mm. Absolutely exploded. And it's it's not. And it's I like spear fishing because it's more selective. Yeah, you can actually have a look, see the see the fish. You can leave what, like if you're pulling out in the deep water, you're pulling up these fish. barra trauma, they're not going back down. Yeah, sort of thing. Even though I love my deep water fishing and chasing silver nanny and and red Emperor and stuff like that but the predation of the sharks has gotten bigger just because the they, they know they hear a boat now mm. and they know there's dinner yeah sort of thing that they're, they're learning so there's a lot lot to learn in the next few years on how to maintain this
1: fishery even in my area I think absolutely because yeah the rules haven't taken into account that explosion in spear fishing it's happened down south where I live as well mm. it's become mainstream now uh, mm. whereas it wasn't like you say it wasn't mainstream before yeah yeah and it's not just how many fish there are like we all, I think we all, tell me if I'm wrong, but we all head out aiming to go to that tropical island and I'm the only one there. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And you get out there and four miles away, you're like, oh, there's three um, masts from catamarans and then you get there and there's all these tinnies pulled up on the beach and everyone else is like wanting their slice of paradise <laughs> for themselves and they're like, oh, everyone's friendly, but you're like, oh, everyone just wants a place to themselves. Well, in, in 10 years' time, there's going to be twice, more than twice as many boats mm. like that. Yeah.
0: So. In fact, when you travelled past this area, it started getting a little bit rougher. I think it got a bit rougher.
1: Yeah, it did. Yeah. So, um, as I went past your part of the case, and I'm deliberately um, bit—I don't really talk about place names too much because yep. just to try and protect yep. the places that are there. And people ask me on social media about that kind of thing, and I'm just like, oh, it's yeah. So yeah, it's best that we don't that mm. we don't upload stuff and talk about names, and then it gets Instagrammable and everyone goes there and it gets trashed. But so this this section of coastline is where it started to get a bit nasty and the you know the the waves get pretty choppy there's a fair bit of fetch length the reefs fair yeah, way away here out, yeah. yeah so when that southeast is blowing i only had 15 to 20 knots really um, but it was gusting up faster than that but it was pretty pretty uncomfortable at times and I ended up, I wanted to camp on some of the islands just really off the coast here but decided to sneak in a, a harbour to get away from the, the bigger seas and it was just rainy and squally and I was soaked and uh, yeah, it was just, I knew that I was right on the limit of my my big sail uh, and then it's quite hard work changing from my big sail to my small sail when there's white caps everywhere. Yeah. So that that was yucky for a few days, and then as I got a bit further north, it cleared up, went sunny, and then the wind just disappeared. So yeah. then I was waiting on an island with no wind for a day, which was like, – I'm happy to name this one because everyone goes there. It was Fitzroy Island, yep. and it was the first glass-off for months or something, and every man and his dog was out there. <laughs> and I was, like, moored next to – um a National Park's mooring boy, just, just you know, no point putting an anchor on the reef if you don't have to – and um, I could hear everyone partying, I could smell the bacon and eggs cooking, and I obviously couldn't um, partake in any of that. So I just stayed on the canoe, and I had a constant stream of people coming over asking questions and things like that, which you'd expect. But um, yeah, it's worse. I would have rather be with no people and no smell of bacon and eggs. <laughs> and we
0: I don't know if we spoke about it earlier on, you pretty much went up in the clothes that was worn at the time and and the materials you fished with were pretty much not
1: far from it like not far from i cheated cheated a little bit to compensate for a couple of things so yeah i looked at what um what he said he had and i know he had clothes and the captain died so i took a captain's jacket that's what i used when i was getting crayfish to protect my arms and stuff yep um but i just my mum actually just googled uh clothing design from the 1800s and just sewed from scratch yeah. pants and a shirt and stuff we just looked at google images and just shaped together what we what we could could and i and a hat and stuff my shoes and a few things so yeah i looked like a bit of a weirdo <laughs> like <laughs> but it makes it more authentic uh, the fishing gear i i thought about using um linen fishing line which is what was used back then yeah uh, i decided not to because it's really hard to get and I know the fishing is not nearly as good as it was when he was around. Mm. And so I decided just to give myself the benefit of just having mono fishing line, which is, um, you know, it's a bit of a cheat, but uh, it would have been easier for him to get fish. Like he could have just walked down and got the crayfish. He could have just hey. helped himself the giant clams too, which I'm not allowed to. Yep. So that that compensated for that side of it. But but I made my own lures, so I just used like antique teaspoon um, with a hook on one end. Yeah, I've seen hook. a picture
0: of that. It's actually on your Instagram, your latest
1: post. Yeah, the it? latest yeah. I think I stuck it on yesterday, yeah. yeah. Um, so that got uh, a third of the fish. The one that really worked was the... Uh, the popper—it was yeah, just a bit timber of timber popper. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just a bit of beach hibiscus, which is um, low density, sort of similar to what my floats are made out of, and um, just hollowed out the, poppered the, the the front face of it a little bit, and yep. wire down the sides, hook on the end, and that was the one that got two thirds of the fish. Yeah, yeah, the, the sharks like the spoon, um, but the queenies and the mackerel like the popper.
0: Yep. So you didn't have a crack at any sharks eating
1: wise? Oh yeah, I, yeah, I ate shark. Yep. So um, I, like I would eat tips and stuff. Yeah, just just reefies. I didn't have any big sharks around the back, which which was surprising. But yeah, I would um, I'd eat the shark, and then I'd whatever meat was left, either on a shark or a fish. I'd basically say I caught one at 10 o'clock. Um, I'd eat the back part of it raw on the spot that night. I'd cook up, um, you know, two meals, and the following two meals the next day. Yep. And then anything left over from that, I'd strip it into like one centimetre. Um, thick strips as long as I could and hang it over the bow and that would just dry out. Yep. Now, I initially thought, oh, this is a bit token, you know, I'm, I'm being a little bit cast away here as if I'm going to eat that shit, you know. <laughs> and then uh, when I got really hungry and I hadn't caught any fish for ages, I'm like, all right, I'm going to give this <laughs> a crack. A and crack. I turned the camera and I'm like, you know, put a bit on my tongue. And was, oh, it's not too bad. And then after I'm like, this is bloody good. This is honestly really yeah. good, you know. I almost prefer this to the cooked stuff. So that was fantastic. The only thing that started happened then I started drying more fish because I liked the taste of it. <laughs> And then the seagulls, I'd, I'd like go off on an island and I'd go off with my spear and I'd come back and the seagulls stolen it. Or well, the <laughs> ants had come on board at low tide, the little buggers, they come on, they steal all the fish off your boat. Um, and then at, when the tide comes back in, they all leave before the tide comes in. It's amazing. They're pretty smart little buggers. <laughs> Figured you out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I thought you might have been u- um, using it as bait or something like that. But oh, I'd always, I'd always keep some for bait. That was my plan too for the dried stuff. You know, I could use it for bait. Yep. But um, bait was a struggle because obviously it only keeps for about maybe two or three days. And then it really stinks so sometimes i just find myself on a spot where i know i could catch little reefies now if i just bait fish at night off the back of the canoe but i've got no bait so drying out little sticks of um, uh, meat with a bit of skin on it worked pretty well it used to stink because the skin stinks but um, when it goes off but yeah it was it's a very effective process and yeah. the water had splashed over it all day long and it sort of adds a bit more salt, salt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's great
0: because that's what they used to do in olden days sold everything that's how they kept their meat yeah, yeah exactly so, pretty yeah. much the same thing yeah. <laughs> All right, as you can tell, that's the end of this little episode. But guess what? Part two will be up next Wednesday. So next week on Wednesday, we'll be delving deeper into the problems and the issues that arose on the trip and also some heartfelt moments that will probably tear you up. It actually teared me up. So, yeah, it'll be good to delve a bit further next week. So um, I'd like to thank Outback Mike again. Check him out on Instagram and Facebook, Outback Mike. And you can check out all his videos. And he's also got a uh, website, www.outbackmike, I'm pretty sure. So check all those websites and stuff out. And um, this podcast is brought to you by Fish Skins. we got the new product coming out end of this week. Check online. Keep, keep checking the socials. They'll be up. You might even see my mug there somewhere. And um, see you next week. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and I'd like to say thank you to all the people who have jumped on board, and please share this yarn with your mate. That's all I need you to do, and um, I'll see you next week. You're a bunch of champs. Bunch of fucking champs.